My name is Briar and I'm from the LUMO team and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this corridor between Energy Academy lead Dee Anderson and Octopus Energy NZ's Managing Director Ari Sargent on innovation opportunities and barriers for Aotearoa. After Dee and Ari have had a chat, we'll have a quick five minute breakout session where you'll have the chance to chat with one or two others about what you've just heard. Then we'll have a decent chunk of time at the end for a collective corridor with Ari. So bring your questions forward. Firstly, just a quick intro to LUMO for those who have just joined us. LUMO Energy Reimagined is the Energy Academy's platform to explore the big ideas facing energy. We started LUMO because we saw an opportunity to create a platform to bring the ideas at the edge of the sector to the forefront. LUMO includes events like this one today, workshops and a series of podcasts, which you can access wherever you get yours. A big, big thank you to our partners at Orion, Genesis, Araake, Ika, Christchurch NZ, MSD and Ara Institute of Canterbury for supporting us in making LUMO. Today's talk is part of the LUMO Energy Tomorrow theme, and that theme was brought to you by our partners at Araake. I'll hand it over to Dee to get things started. I'll be leading this discussion today with Ari. Um, but first of all, I just want to thank everyone for showing up today. This LUMO community is, is growing all the time. And although we couldn't have an event in person where we would have a lot of audience participation, um, both Briar and Erica have done their best to ensure that every, every session we have involves a lot of your input. So it's really important for you to show up and be part of this community and help us grow that. Um, I'd love to say my next guest needs no introduction <laughs> for so many reasons. But if you, if you don't know who Ari is, he's been around for 30 years in the sector. He started off setting up Meridian's trading operations. He negotiated things like the renewal of TY Point's contract. But in his own words, he said he felt like a square peg in a round hole. So he left all of that to start PowerShop. And we all would probably know who PowerShop is. It's probably one of the not one of the only, but a very small handful of brands that bring some personality into the energy market and connect with consumers. Um, successfully entered that, made it the, the first ever multinational energy franchise, which is pretty big, huge achievement. Um, left that and now you've probably all heard as well, the UK unicorn um, octopus energy has entered New Zealand market and Ari's been at the helm leading that. So welcome Ari. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thanks, Dee. Um, yeah, good pleasure to be here. Um, I see a few familiar faces on the on the screen. Um, some people that have been around almost as long as I have, or perhaps even longer. So it's good to see you all out there. <laughs> awesome. So, Ari, we've got we 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 find ourselves in this moment of history in this global context of markets collapsing all collapsing all over the place. We've got governments, you know, being forced to make um, decarbonisation targets for all good reason. We've also got consumer choice and demand entering the mix as well. We're in this perfect storm where we've got so many opportunities for especially for a nation like New Zealand. The big question we want to talk to you about today and ask for, from your experience is, what do you think are those opportunities for New Zealand? Are we aiming too low? And if we are, what are the barriers that you see in front of us, both perceived and like tangible and intangible barriers? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, 
I'll probably focus more a little more on the sort of um, energy consumer side of things and, and the retailing activities in terms of opportunities there. Um, although sort of slightly more broadly in, in the industry context, I mean, the the New Zealand energy market, New Zealand electricity market specifically, has got so much going for it that you know other other governments and regulators around the world will be leaping over themselves to have some of the things that we've got in our market. You know, thing. And, and a lot of them, to be fair, are accidents of history, but, you know, we find ourselves in a very fortunate sort of circumstance, you know, the, you know, 85% plus renewable energy already. Um, most people are starting from the other end. Um, you know, things like, um, you know, our, our smart meter deployment was well ahead of the rest of the world. We've got, um, you know, we, we're just now going through meter replacement programs because our, our, our very early meters went in sort of almost 15 years ago, so they're coming to end of life. So we've had, you know, we're a decade old smart meter market, which gives us a lot more information than, than other markets. Um, so other things, um, you know, that we sort of take for granted that are, um, you know, only just coming to the fore in other markets too, um, you know, simple things like heat pumps, which we've had in, in New Zealand as a, you know, primary heat source for, you know, 20 plus years, are only really now starting to replace gas-fired boilers up in, in Northern Hemisphere and in, in Europe in particular. So a lot of things that we have already, um, you know, other things that are, again, probably less obvious, but, um, you know, demand response. We've had hot water heater, you know, hot water ripple control for for decades. Um, in some markets, that that's seen as a you know a panacea of, of demand response because you know that those sorts of things just don't exist. So um, there's a, there's a whole lot of things around that sort of context. We're, the other, you know, we were also one of the very early markets to deregulate and, and enter full retail competition. Um, you know, Victoria and Australia is before us, but we weren't far behind them. Um, so the, the sort of, I guess, the collision of you know that that pedigree, um, you know, smart meter market, early to competition, has means we've got a lot of experience in understanding those technologies and those arrangements. But more importantly, we've had a decade of you know what does that mean for consumers? How, how do we how do we engage consumers in different ways? Um, and you know even even our consumer engagement is, is is world leading. You know again other markets would be you know they want they want consumers to play a bigger role, particularly in a, a decarbonised energy system, but they haven't had a need to engage. You know UK's mm. classic example, you, you get a standard bill of you know whatever eighty or hundred quid quid a month, and your consumption is truly disconnected from your billing you just don't don't engage you don't need to so you know all of those sort of things and, and I guess one of the other really important points related to that is as a result of those things in the in the context that we operate in we've actually got a lot of knowledge in the New Zealand market there's a lot of smart people in, in our market that that you know understand how these things work and understand what works and what doesn't all those things so we've got you know we've got a lot to offer there's a lot of um, you know, latent experience and latent capability, um, and it's it's just sort of sitting there to be plucked. So yeah, a absolutely. You know, we've we've got we've got I guess a almost a perfect storm to be positioned to um, you know lead lead the world and and sort of decarbonisation activities, particularly how they how they might relate to to end consumers. It's the positive perfect storm. But where where do you think that New Zealand's got? The most potential to export export that capability. I mean, I think it really is probably in that in that sort of consumer um, engagement and how how educating and, and enabling consumers on the role that they can play in in the in the future energy world. Um, you know, energy's been taken for granted. You turn the light switch on and the lights go, and you know you don't you're not forced to be part of the overall sort of energy balance. But increasingly, 
as renewable sources, you know, become a, a, an even bigger mix, part of the mix. Um, you know, flexibility on the demand side is is you know of value, um, and that's that doesn't necessarily mean people getting up and down every time the price changes, but you know, putting in place technologies that will allow that and understanding. Uh, allowing consumers to understand the value of those things and why they might invest in those technologies. Um, those, you know, those sorts of things are, are really where we can, um, you know, leapfrog the rest of the market. And as I say, simple things like, you know, heat water ripple control. Obviously, there'll be new technology used these days, but, you know, that that sort of the understanding of how, how, that, how that interacts with, um, you know, network company operation and energy markets and all those sorts of things. Again, a lot of, lot of capability in, in, in our market. I think also one of the one of the things the energy sector is trying to do, obviously in the talent war, we're trying to educate young kids more on energy on energy because we want them to consider energy as a future career and all of this. But at the same time, we're educating them on energy, so they're going to be uh, more participatory consumers, right? And so at the same time as that happens, we, that that means that the population can begin to hold our energy our energy sector to account a lot more than we probably ever have before as well. Um, but where, so you've, you've talked about the aspirations, but what do you think in New Zealand, what's holding us back? Like, why, why, couldn't, it, why couldn't we be world leaders? Or we, may, we possibly could, you've said we can, right? But what do you think some of the things that are in our way? Yeah, I mean, if I sort of, you know, if I reflect on my, my time at PowerShop, you know, a bit over a decade ago, um, being a New Zealand company trying to go global, and now working for a global company that has had that that sort of exponential sort of um, that growth over the last two or three years, and I kind of and I look at the ingredients of what was what was good and what was you know what was not so good, um, and I think you know the things that sort of um, I think impacted on our ability to sort of be that be that catalyst change you know and and have that exponential growth that, that Octopus now has that we didn't have in PowerShop, and I think. You know, there was a number of factors. Um, you know, I think I think timing was was an interesting one. I think you know we we developed arguably still probably the most advanced consumer experience around energy that exists. You know that that was we transformed the model from being very much passive to you know um, turning electricity into a, into a consumer good from a utility. Um, and I think it was probably an idea that was well before its time, particularly in some of those those you know dumbed down markets. And one of one of the lessons we learned, you know, we when we went to the UK, we had this, you know, highly advanced, highly engaged consumer model, um, and took that to a market where they read the meter once a year or twice if you're lucky, and they just didn't connect. And the consumer expectation in that market was, doesn't matter how much, doesn't matter how much energy I use, I pay a fixed amount every month. So the two models clash. So in, in a way, the the fact that we were more advanced in those simpler markets was a good thing and gave us, you know, opportunity to to um, create new experiences but i think we were we were probably you know too far ahead of our time so there's there was definitely a timing issue which we need to be cognizant of now you know new zealand is, as i said is a decade old smart meter market uk is kind of almost there now but even places like germany which you'd expect would be more technology advanced don't really have any any smart meters in at consumer level so need to be careful that we're not leapfrogging too far ahead and, and make sure that you know we're, we're managing the innovation in a way that that a market and, and consumers in a market can adopt so Need to be cognizant of that. Um, I think the other thing is um, Kiwis just don't understand scale. You know, we we, we really don't. Um, you know, it's 
you know, you, you look at the, the largest retailer in New Zealand, now, now Mercury with a combined trust power, probably, I don't know, 750,000 customers. You know, you've got retailers in, in other parts of the world that are multi-million customers. You've got, you've got retailers in other parts of the world that, that are multiples of size of the entire New Zealand market. And that, you know, that's just a whole different scale. And I think the way you approach those markets needs, needs to be, um, you know, well thought through. So, you know, Kiwis are renowned for the should we right number eight wire sort of attitude, which is great to, to, you know, keep costs low and innovate on the New Zealand market, but they don't translate to scale. You, you just can't get away with being, you know, belts and braces. You, you know, you really need to have a well, well orchestrated, well planned and, you know, well thought through scalability plan. And that's something that, that as Kiwis, we, we really, you know, we really don't understand. And even if we understand it, you, you, you look to proof points, you say, okay, yeah, you're a, you're a retailer or you're a tech innovator in, in the New Zealand market, you've got 50,000, 100,000 customers, whatever. Try and sell that to a, an energy utility that's got millions of customers and they just, you know, they just look straight past you. So there's, you know, even if, even if you could understand scalability, um, actually being able to um, prove and demonstrate that is, is quite challenging. So again, it requires thought and maybe partnerships and so on, but um, so there's some issues in there, but but I think probably the the most um, the most controllable one in a way is um, I guess describe it as aspiration and confidence that um, you know that you know I, you know I talked to you the other day, Dee, about you know the the Kiwis definition of success is the three Bs: it's the BMW, the the batch, and the boat. You know, and that that defines success, which is you know in, in many ways is very much a, a, a B plan, it, and it's fine for some people, but you know. Um, I think New Zealand companies can and should aim a lot higher in, in their aspirations and not hold themselves back. It's, you know, there's the, there's the you know, classic Kiwi tall poppy syndrome and, you know, just the, the humility that comes with, you know, is ingrained in our culture um, sometimes holds us back. And I think that's probably the most, most controllable one to actually just think about, you know, opportunities in a, in a grander scale and a much bigger market and, and not be afraid of embracing those. So, if, you know, if I look at, again, looking at the comparison between something like PowerShop, which was highly innovative, had a lot of smart people working in it. Octopus in the UK has the same thing, a lot of smart people, a lot of great ideas. The thing that sort of the big difference from them is that they don't think twice about going into huge markets. It's like, well, yeah, bring it on, the more the merrier, whereas New Zealand tend to be a little bit more, uh, I'm not sure if we could swallow that, it's a bit tough, you know, it's high risk and whatever. So I think, um, yeah, def definitely there's there's some intrinsic stuff that's holding us back. There's, there's external things that we can't have much control over, but there's certainly a lot that we can do internally that, that will change the, the, the approach to innovation and, and being able to take that to the world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the scalability is another thing. We, we talked a little bit about data the other day as well. And what fascinates me from that conversation is the idea of like, who, who actually owns our data? Because there's a lot of things we can do with efficiency through, you know, making better decisions from our meters. But could you sort of unpack that for us around this, the, the, the who, who owns the data at the moment and what that could potentially do for us if we actually probably had this, re removed this idea of scarcity and, and trying to own, own a certain piece and imagine the scalability that we could get if we actually started to share this data for the greater, greater good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, Without a doubt, you know, information about a consumer is owned by the consumer. So your consumption information, your electricity consumption information belongs to you as a consumer. Um, 
but by virtue of regulations and and you know um, contractual relationships, the the res the person responsible for collecting that data is well for, for using that data and, and you know provision of the service of collection of that data is the retailer. So um, you know there's there's metering companies in, in the middle, but essentially it's the the retailer that gets access to a consumer's information. And you know I, I find it bloody ridiculous that you know in some network areas we have to have two meters so the network company can have information to run their to run the network. I mean that's you know it's a sad indictment on on the way the industry operates that you know you can't even come to some agreement about information sharing you have to put another meter at, at some cost on on a on a you know consumer's property so you know there's there's some stuff there that um you know obviously privacy is important and you know data protection and, and all those things are important but i think if you are um much more freely sharing that information than and and as a service provider whether you're an electricity market participant or not as a service provider if you could get access to 10 years of half hourly energy consumption across the whole of New Zealand. Imagine what you could do with some machine learning. You know, you could you could yeah. um, pro provide intelligent services on recommendation for you know things like insulation or behaviour change or you know monitoring the you know a lot of a lot of our meters actually have hot water cylinders on a separate register. So you could actually say you know you could actually start you know doing some predictive and you know advisory services around hot water systems there's all sorts of things that you could do with with that vast amount of information but at the moment it's locked up in in a sort of um i think technically it's probably relatively easy to get that available to a, a range number of people but it's just kind of locked up with you know outdated regulation and um historic commercial agreements which you know you know that it's 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 a bit sad that we can't we can't unlock that that sort of late potential. There's no other market in the world really that's got ten years of that level of granularity of consumption information. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely un, untapped potential in that in that space. Yeah, I really do see it too. With just, I mean, you just think the more data points and historic data we've got, this is the perfect perfect storm for a robot to come in and tell us what we need to do, right? Yep, um, definitely. And and you do you talk about outdated regulation? You like. I've been thinking about this a bit. Like, if you think about a regulatory system, and like in in um, I can't speak for entirely for Aboriginal culture in Australia, but you know their, their idea of regulation is that it, you have a personal regulation, you have community re regulation, you have all these different layers of regulation, and I feel like the regulatory environment here in in New Zealand is probably around a financial financial aspects of this, trying to keep things fair and regulated and all this. But have we moved probably in a time of human evolution where the, the things that we're trying to regulate should be involving a little bit more of our environmental re regulation? Are there different data points that involve the regulation? I mean, I can't, I don't really understand the regula regulatory environment in, in energy. I've been trying to, because I find it kind of difficult, but you, you say it's outdated, and we need to wrap up here in a minute. What what parts of it do you think are really the most outdated? I mean, you know, there's there's any any number of sort of ways we could talk for days on the subject, but I think you know, I, I don't, I, I think any good regulator, and I think New Zealand has got some reasonable regulators, will take into account you know social and environmental and financial things, um, you know, things like secure supply as well, and in, in relation to energy. So I don't think that the elements have changed. But I think the focus and priority has changed. So if you go back to you know the mid '90s when the New Zealand electricity market was was being deregulated, the objective function for the regulator was um, you know 
to depoliticize the industry, to bring in operational and investment efficiency and, and, and develop mechanisms that allowed um, the state not to have to make every new generation investment and decision at hundreds of millions of dollars that the market mm. would sort that out and that operationally things would run efficiently. So that was the objective function almost 30 years ago. The objective function of 2022 is how quickly can we decarbonize our, our industry and how, how quickly can we make that sustainable for the long term? So the factors are the same. Environmental factors are always there, but their importance has become much more. So given your objective functions changed, um, maybe the underlying market structures need to change or certainly you know, there'll be some areas of regulation that, that just don't, don't fit the new objective function that, that they were drafted for back you know, 25, 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really, really strong point there. We're going to wrap this this part of the um, session up. Um, Eric is going to put us all into breakout rooms. Please respond to the points that Ari's been making. Talk talk amongst yourselves, and then and then bring back um, some some questions to Ari because um, he's going to be available to you from there on. Thanks, Erica. And we're back. <laughs> Um, one, two, three, eyes on me. I can see your face there, Roger. And I know, I just get this feeling that you might have something to say. <laughs> if you want me to, I'm happy, I'm happy to ask away then. I mean, Go on. Give us very nice to see, very nice to see you, Ari. Likewise, Roger. The whole business about ripple control, yeah, we've got this ripple control. We have all these hot water cylinders out there. We're going into a new phase of decarbonisation where potentially we could be using that to try and manage load in a more intelligent way. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we in the networks have got control over the switch. How do we make that transition to the retailers having control over the switch? Or do we just start using it in a more intelligent way in response to when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining or it's raining to use the ripple in a, in a smart way? And then over time, do we let, let, let the retailers try and take it over? Have you thought much more about that, Ari? It seems to me that's a real strength we've got and we don't want to lose it. And we, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of, I guess, co-optimization of network value and energy value is, is an important issue because you, you obviously don't want to have customers with their hot water turned off for 10 hours a day because the retailer wants it for four and the lines company wants it for the other four. So absolutely a, a co-optimization approach should be adopted. Um, interesting enough, a bit of, bit of a side advert, um, Octopus has a technology called Crack and Flex, which is designed to optimize distributed energy resource um, management. So th there's definitely work going on on platforms that are designed to do exactly that. Um, so obviously, you know, there's only one switch, but you want to build constraints around, okay, that, you know, it's X hours a day and this is its ramp up and ramp down profile and, and optimize against, you know, the the energy spot market or energy contract price or something and, and some sort of shadow value for, for networks. So yeah, ab absolutely, we should be doing that. We should be thinking about, okay, it's less about the technology. As long as you've got access to the switch somehow, you, you'll find a way to turn it on and off. It's, it's about that, that bit that sits in the middle that says, you know, under what conditions should I turn it off and on? And, you know, what does that look like? So yeah, absolutely. Yep, definitely. Does anyone, okay, we've got Marcel. Do you want to? Oh, you've you've just popped in the um the article. Does anyone else? I can see your face, David Freeman Green. <laughs> what did you discuss? 
been furiously trying to um, find <laughs> how I can go off camera, but I find that obviously has not been successful. <laughs> no, we had a fantastic uh, group, um, and uh, we one of us were not me were, were cut off in their prime, which <laughs> it just had a very good uh, question. But what we touched on um, a, a little bit was a, a question around um, Ari talked about uh, global scale, and, and we don't understand that. And look, New Zealand combines a pimple on the pumpkin. So the question sort of I, I was thinking about is um, we can't match the resources, uh, people or, or financial resources in the UK with UK Parnet or something that's got 6,000 people and, you know, 50 people thinking about flexibility services. So how do we uh, combine our collective smarts in this country to innovate? How do we aggregate the resources we have? How do we break down the barriers to deliver um, what we need to? Because um you know with a lot of lines companies a lot of retailers so 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 what's the is there what are your thoughts on unlocking some of that and 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 aggregating some of that um innovation capability to benefit a broader you know broader group if that makes sense yeah yeah i mean i think um i mean there's some interesting stuff in that and i, I mean you could take it in a number of different directions but yeah you know, I, I think um, in a lot of cases, you know, New Zealand corporates are kind of got the worst of both worlds. They're, they're slow and risk averse and, you know, take time to make decisions and do stuff, but they have no scale either. And that's kind of the worst of both worlds. So I think, you know, even in, in, in our energy industry, even large players in New Zealand are small by international standards but they think like big companies and act like big companies rather than, you know, agile, fast moving companies. So, you know, again, Mercury's biggest retailer, 750,000 customers in the UK market or in the German market or in, in you know, other parts of the world at a new entrant. So, and, and the way you, you, the way you approach operations and the way you make decisions and, and those sorts of things and the way you approach innovation is, is entirely different. So I think partly it's around the corporate culture of New Zealand needs to think that, you know, make, be less risk averse, be more aspirational and, and, and just move faster. Um, yep. And then, then you've got, you know, a much bigger pool of resource um, that, that can, um, you know, be brought to bear in terms of, you know, growing international opportunities. Um, you've got other things in, in the New Zealand market, which are probably not so great. You know, we've got, whatever, 30 something lines companies. We've, we've probably got more than the UK and, and that just adds complexity. And um, there's, you know, there's probably more opportunity for collaboration amongst those than, than we've seen historically. I think we're seeing more of that now, particularly as decarbonisation becomes a priority. But, you know, perhaps dealing with six lines companies might be easier than dealing with 30 and, and you know, making traction and pooling resources. Um, so there's some, you know, there's structurally, we're small enough as it is without fragmenting it even more um, to be able to, you know, pr present a, a united front to the, to the world at large. Um, and then, then I think there's things like partnerships that, you know, we, we've got good, good experience and good ideas in New Zealand, but, you know, to get scale and to get, you know, to get credibility in a scale market may actually require just having some partnerships with bigger players. Um, so fishing out the right players and, and working collaboratively with them. Hmm. Evie, are you, are you there? You've got a great question. Do you want to come forward and ask it? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, Ari. Nice to hear from you. Hi, Evie. Um, I had a question just about the the point you were making around sharing of data, and I think we do have a really unique opportunity with the amount of data we've got. Um, the UK 
Energy Systems Catapult established a energy data task force a couple of years back, and that's been pretty instrumental in, in terms of driving collaboration and the principle of presumed open data. And I was wondering whether that's something that you think would be useful in the New Zealand context to try and unlock that data to people who need it. I haven't looked at what's going on in the UK specifically, but it sounds like it's the right sort of thing. I think um, you know, absolutely we should be looking to looking at ways to open up data as much as possible, but you know maintaining um, privacy and, and you know private data in, in an appropriate way. So, yeah, I mean I think uh, things like task force and working groups worry me that it just you know it's years and years of talking not doing but in terms of the principles it sounds you know it sounds like it's heading down the right the right track thanks ari um marcel you've got a really great question there it's, just, it's specifically related to octopus energy do you want to come forward and ask this sure yeah i just needed to write it down um <laughs> for it to make sense so i uh, I looked this up, there was an energy news article from September last year that said Octopus Energy is holding off on the New Zealand retail market until the wholesale outlook improves. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff in there about, you know, the prices and in uncertainty and things. What's changed in the last 10 or so months? Um, to yeah. make now the, time, the right time. <laughs> Sadly, not much. Um, we, we haven't seen much progress in, in um, you know, in terms of um, market price movement that that would reflect underlying conditions or any movement in the regulatory sense. But I guess we are, um, you know, Octopus is a long-term player, and we're here for the long term. And we see a bit of a gold rush in, in new distributor generation projects, solar projects coming to bear, and those sorts of things. And the number of you know sites that are being consented and, and looking for network connections and so on. So. Um, we accept that there's a cost of entering this market, but you know, I'm, I'm more confident that the supply balance in the in the medium term will, will, will turn around. And we're also increasingly confident so, that some of the other um, parts of what we offer in the UK that we're bringing down to New Zealand around offerings around um, electric vehicles and um, demand flexibility services and so on will A, allow us to manage our energy exposure better, but B, allow us to develop new products. So short term, it, it's it's still a bit of a shitstorm, but hopefully, you know, our, our confidence around the medium term is increasing. Um, Tony, I'm going to get to you in a second, but I'm just going to jump to Terry Paddy, who um, is never short of a word on these things. Can you come forward? Hi. G'day, Ari. I just, hey, Terry. I, just, I just wanted to pick up on the conversation, your earlier conversation with Roger around um, uh, controllability, really, of flexibility resources. Isn't it moving? And I think the octopus model looks like it's, um, it's definitely about that sort of activity. Flexibility services are moving to the edge where the customer or the owner of the flexibility resources. So value stacking is really important. And if you allow someone else to be sharing control of something, then that value stacking opportunity goes away. Given that networks may need to signal emergency things and they need to be acted on, and all other times, don't you see that actually ripple control should be in the sole hands of the um, flexibility service provider, the retailer that's looking after that customer group? Um, that that may well be how it pans out. Um, it um, 
but without knowing the sort of exact circumstances, I guess you don't know, which is why there's a role for an optimizer that might sit in the middle. So, you know, in, in, in the ordinary course of events, you'd say, okay, there's certain hours of the day where the network's constrained, particularly in winter months, and you know, and the network controller wants that capacity for certain hours or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, there's obviously emergency events, then network takes priority, there's no question of that. Um, you know, keeping supply balance is no question. But, um, you know, if you increasingly get, you know, battery storage, whether that's, you know, fixed batteries or, you know, once you get to vehicle to grid, um, electric vehicles pushing back, maybe those constraints and those constraint patterns change and maybe it's not just a, a network sort of emergency that, that requires, you know, that, that, that I guess it's, it's a, my point is it's a dynamic thing and you want to set up the structure that allows um, the optimization to move with the changing environment and the changing nature of what's installed on the network. I'm sure you'll optimize if um, those services are being paid for. I just see them as services that are offered by somebody. Sure, yeah, but the point is that they need, you know, they need to be, they need to be co-optimized. You need, you know, so who owns the switches? not that important and what technology is is not that important but the optimization of the control of that switch should be centralized with all relevant services being valued in, in the mix. Mm. Uh, good points there. Tony do you want to um, turn your camera on and come forward with your question? Uh, yep um, sorry I can't get my camera on but um, my question kind of comes back to what Marcel was asking and I've heard you speak um, in the past Ari about Octopus's role in New Zealand really being about innovating and testing new products. Um, so what kind of things could we expect to see coming out of Octopus? Where are you looking? Um, I think the main area it's fair to say is in those flexibility services we see the decarbonisation of the system even further than there's already bring with it um, a much greater variability on the supply side and an increasing ro increasing role for demand side to you know bridge that that's that balance so we'll be looking to explore um, largely using the crack and flex technology the ability to sort of get that um, bring those new flexibility products to market um, and part so part of that part of that is um, educating consumers on the opportunities but the other part is what well, making it easy but also making it valuable so if you're going to spend 10 grand on a battery in your house how can you get the most value out of that battery and what, what flexibility services can we offer in a, in a simple simple way that kind of makes that a valuable investment I, we did know that there'd be a bit of interest in talking about octopus today so there you've actually you've got it look um we're going to finish on this final question because i think it's probably the the biggest question and you know we everybody's answer to this could be completely different but it's from Gary it says oh Gary do you want to come Gary you come and ask it yeah thanks Steve um Ari uh the question I've got uh a really good presentation today and some really cool things to think about um from where we are and where we need to be but you know if we were to stop talking and, and really start to get off the stuff what would be the three tangible things to really move the dial on decarbonising the economy, if that's the, the focus that we really need to be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, I think um, obviously supply side's important. So, you know, making it um, as, as easy as possible to get new generation sites, whether that's solar or wind or whatever it is, you know, um, consented and built as quickly as possible. 
Um, so obviously supply side is, is you know, critical in that. Um, I think, um, I guess in the, in the sort of middle bit, the industry stuff, I think we need to get much better at collaborating. And that's, you know, at all levels, that's, you know, collaboration on ideas, collaboration on, you know, tangible opportunities, collaboration on data sharing is a big one. So there's a whole lot of stuff as an industry we can do just to um, make sure that everybody's better informed and those opportunities, you know, um, come to the surface. And then the third one, I think, is the one we've just talked about is, you know, educating and enabling the demand side to take a bigger part in the in the whole energy supply chain rather than just being a passive taker of energy. How can they invest in the right technologies and the right behaviours that, that fit with, uh, you know, the intimate, intimate nature of renewable um, sources of energy? I feel like you've just summed up like a, you know, a $100,000 big four cons consultation report on the <laughs> <laughs> in those three points. There you go, had it. Nobody needs to pay anything anymore, just the, those three points. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you again today, Ari. I really appreciate your radical candor in all the, in all the conversations that we've had and everything going. We, um, we've got a... Um, uh, a good eye on, on octopus and where it's going. And we, we, we love new brands in the market. So we'll be following that story. Um, for anyone else out there in the audience, if you've got ideas for, um, or your own idea for a, a Lumo talk yourself, please connect with us. Um, we want to really re bring, bring this community into these conversations. So um, I'll just finish off there. Does any, Erica or Briar, do you want to just, um, is there anything else that you need to, yeah, I, um, thank you so much, Ari. That was such an awesome conversation. And um, <clears throat> sorry, thanks so much to our participants for being so involved. Um, we would really love to offer you all, if you're not already on there, a, um, a place on our Lumo 364 platform, which um, is a place to collaborate, as Ari was mentioning, and, and get get some stuff done. We've got really cool people already on there and, and much more to come. Um, so I'll, I'll add a link in the chat um, and feel free to connect through there. But yeah, thanks thanks so much again and big thanks to you, Ari, for your time and energy today. Problem. See you cool. later, everyone. Okay. Have a great weekend. Thank, Thank you, everyone. It was very good. Thank you. Okay.